girl, boy, girl. It's balanced. The yin yang. <laughs> anyway, good evening and welcome to Happy Live. I'm Veronica Krauss. And I'm you, you're in, in for such a treat this evening. I was at the concert last night and I was mentioning that at the end I cried. Um, during it I laughed so much at one point I snorted. It's just it's just it's the most charming, it's the most charming evening. So I would like you please to welcome the uh, conductor of the Helsinki Philharmonic Orchestra, who's also in her second season as the LA Phil's principal guest conductor, the wonderful Susanna Malki. And the director for this evening's show, Rhodes Scholar, expert, a leading American expert in the works of um, Shakespeare. And also, he is the Erna Finci Viterbi, artistic director of the Old Globe in San Diego. I got it. Whew, that, it's, it's tough, that thing. Anyway, Barry Edelstein, wonderful. <laughs> I have these two for exactly 15 minutes, so we'll get right into it. Yesterday we were talking a little bit about the production and how you put it together. I was wondering if you each could talk a little bit about that, because it was so fascinating, the time constraints and the order of things happening. Well, um, <laughs> I guess for, for me, the, um, the initial... I mean, of course, Shakespeare is something for us musicians, which is like larger than life, and we would love to know more about. And we know a lot of works by Shakespeare by, by the, what, how composers became inspired by the texts. And, and one of these composers is Jean Zibelius, who is a composer that I know quite well and I'm fascinated by and grew up with and so forth. And then there's this music for The Tempest that he wrote uh, as among last pieces in his life which is very rarely played. I mean, the overture, which is the storm, and, and some of the other songs are sometimes performed in concert, but otherwise this complete incidental music is practically unknown, uh, or, well, not in Finland, but, <laughs> but in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then this wonderful meeting with Barry Edelstein, Edelstein sorry, who is uh, he, an expert on Shakespeare who understood immediately, I felt, the challenge about about how this music and the text could alternate and 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 you came with so actually it was it was Barry who structured structured the evening because we had the music and then there was a lot of text you cut the text to seventy percent or something like that and then uh, there was music for certain scenes but not to all of them and and you were so creative about the music that existed and suggested a lot of things. I mean, we, we are respecting Sibelius, but, but we are also creative with the music. You can take over here. Well, uh, thank you, <laughs> Susanna. It's nice. Thank you for being nice to me. Um, it, 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 I'm a guest in this world. I'm a theater man. I'm not a musician. I'm not a classical music person. Um, and uh, I knew that there was this Sibelius score because once in a while, Orchestras will ask a theater to come and narrate the play and then say, and now the storm happens, and then the orchestra plays it, and now Prospero does a charm, and the orchestra plays the next piece. Um, we know in 1925 that the piece was commissioned for the Theater Royal in Copenhagen, and the theater of the 1920s in Europe was essentially a 19th century theater. 
our modern tradition of Shakespeare starts with something called the Elizabethan Stage Society in England in the late 20s. And the, the sort of naturalistic tradition of Shakespeare and the texts being uncut and unadapted happened not until after Sibelius wrote this. And so the theater in um, Copenhagen, where it was premiered, really was a kind of 19th century painted scenery, heavily adapted. Obviously, the text was in Danish and not in English. And so the material kind of skips around. And there are, there are about 38 pieces of music, I think, um, in the original thing. And they're labeled. And so one will say, Miranda goes to sleep and there's about a minute and a half of music. Well, in Shakespeare's text, Miranda, Prospero puts Miranda to sleep with two lines. And so you then have another minute and a half of music, and you think, well, where's it supposed to go? Where does it belong? Sibelius doesn't tell you where it starts, where it ends. Then there are things where a modern production would say, well, there must be music there. Prospero's famous speech about our revels now are ended. There must be music there. And Sibelius didn't put any music there. So we talked about how to make it feel like an integrated thing, like, a, like it, it had been designed anew to happen now. And as Susanna said, we sort of moved a few pieces around, shortened a couple of pieces, took sections of one piece and put it somewhere else and made this kind of hybrid that feels customized for this production here. That was, it was very interesting because the pieces, you did sort of move them around and it, it felt as if it was a, um, I, I'm going to use an analogy, a film edited, edit, where you've got different things are supplied and you make it work and, and even better than it was possibly originally. It was fun and, and hard sometimes to figure mm -hmm. out how to make it work and not have one overwhelm the other. Uh, we rehearsed for about a month, um, two weeks in San Diego and then two weeks here, here in LA in, in the fill in its generosity because we were only here on stage for three days to put this extremely complicated. There are 150 people on stage and we only had three days here in the hall. So the fill built the entire set in a soundstage in East LA and we rehearsed on the set somewhere else with a rehearsal pianist and an assistant conductor and then Susanna came by and um, sort of figured out how to make this thing and then just plop it down on the stage here in the concert hall in a, a way that Susanna's used to the speed of orchestras, not me. I had no idea. Well, I felt like I was hit by a bus, um, but we, we kind of um, made it happen. Why don't we put that into perspective? So for a normal production of The Tempest, how long would you be in rehearsal for? Well, we'd, we'd rehearse four weeks in a studio at the Old Globe and then a week on stage and then typically a week of previews before it opens for the public. Okay. So we did the same four weeks in the studio, but only three days on stage and no previews. The first public performance was the opening night last That's night. Right, right. And then, Susanna, if you would tell us what would be the typical rehearsal span for an orchestra of, of you know, L.A. Phil's caliber for a, new, for a piece like this? Well, for a piece like this, we can't say because this is a... For a symphony concert mm -hmm. in America, actually, it's always very quick. There are usually two days prior to the first concert day. Yeah, so, and the first day is very short and on the second day there are two short rehearsals and then there is the dress or the general rehearsal which usually 
you know, has right. all the program played, and mm -hmm. then, then that's it. So it's mm -hmm. extremely efficient, I would say time efficient, mm -hmm. especially in North America. Um, in Europe, it's a little bit different mm -hmm. because the system, the orchestras function a bit differently. Mm -hmm. But we are used to the speed. It's, it doesn't, doesn't mean that we are comfortable with it, but we are always, that's always the, the schedule. That's, you, you, you brought up an interesting thing, you know, in Europe or in America. Um, performing music, conducting, let's say, the same piece in a different country or directing the same play, the Shakespeare play, in different countries, especially in different languages, do you ever notice differences culturally between orchestras or theater groups? I think uh, yes, because there are different different cultures in different orchestras, and th those cultures depend on what kind of repertory they have been playing, mm -hmm. how their music directors have been wanting them to play, mm -hmm. and and also there are lots of stylistic questions these days. You can play early music or very, you know, all these all these um, developments from the recent decades about how we play Mozart mm -hmm. and and Haydn mm -hmm. and all of those things. They vary in different orchestras. And then there's Sibelius, for example, which is it's different to do in Finland because everybody grows up with the music and swims or takes baths in Sibelius since <laughs> this age. And then you go to a country where it's really foreign and even a little bit odd before mm -hmm. people understand. I mean, it's very sort of austere music and it doesn't come for free. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this orchestra, of course, has a little bit of a Finnish past also, mm -hmm. so Sibelius is not foreign. But, but there are differences when you play, or if you play German music in Germany, you feel that it's their music. It's quite interesting, really mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, the analogy is Shakespeare in English versus Shakespeare in translation. The minute you take Shakespeare into a foreign language, something essential goes away, but extraordinary new things can happen. The single greatest Shakespeare production I ever saw was in Swedish, which was Ingmar Bergman's production of The mm. Winter's Tale. I don't speak any Swedish. I have no idea whether the translation was old Swedish or contemporary Swedish. I've seen Shakespeare in maybe 12 different languages. Um, there are some German translations that date much closer to Shakespeare, uh, you know, only 150 years or so after his death. Um, and, and, and German and English share common roots. So Shakespeare in German is a very close experience to Shakespeare in English. But I've seen Shakespeare in Japanese, where the, it takes so many more words to unpack a Shakespearean idea. The plays are extremely long, for example. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very different translation. When, it's a very different experience when you move into translation. Here also we have a, a great Israeli actor playing Prospero. His name is Lior Ashkenazi, one of the great actors in the world. And um, he's doing Shakespeare in English sort of remarkably, I think. Um, and he too brings a slightly different cultural experience to it. The company is exceedingly diverse, actors of many, many different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So it's this wonderful mix. It feels to me very contemporary, very American, mm -hmm. um, and it's really thrilling to mm -hmm. be around. Great. I have you just for a few more minutes. Maybe we could mention, we could, you could mention a few spots, especially in the piece that you quite love or that you're... Is that a fair question? I it's didn't say one. <laughs> It's a, it's a beautiful question and I mm -hmm. wish I could pick just one, but I can't mm -hmm. because, because there few. are so many mm -hmm. pearls. Mm -hmm. What is remarkable, I think, uh, I mean partly, there, I, I mentioned this, that the Sibelius wrote music which is practically unheard, some of it. Mm -hmm. And we also hear a different side of Sibelius. For example, the music that he writes for Ariel is unlike any music I've ever heard of Sibelius before. Mm -hmm. 
And then there is, of course, there is the storm, which is incredibly modern and incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And then you have some of these songs which are in very, very, like folkloristically, mm -hmm. very, very simple and pure. And so there are lots of contrasts. So I guess it, for everybody, there will be their own favorites according to the mood of the day, but, mm -hmm. but it's certainly a very rich score. Great. Well, for me, the, the thrill of this experience is the venue and the elements that are in play. I, I've directed, this is my 19th Shakespeare play out of 36, and I've directed in big venues, Shakespeare in the Park in New York City is one of the largest 2,000 seats um, venues in the country. Um, but, and I've used a lot of live music in Shakespeare plays, but typically in the theater you can afford two or three musicians. Mm -hmm. So here we have 80 members of the LA <laughs> Phil, 40 <laughs> members of the LA Master Chorale, five opera singers, 10 actors, and uh, 12 actors and 10 dancers. And there's a moment in act one of the piece when everybody is at work. The 10 dancers are dancing, the actors are acting, the 40 choral people are singing, and, the, and the, the orchestra is playing like its life depends on it. And the first, and not to mention there's a video element in our production inside. And so there is this maximal thing, a, a giant work of art happening in front of you. And the first time I saw it, two days ago, I got the vapors. I mean, I literally had to fan myself because I, I was in a state of disbelief that somehow I was involved in this extraordinary thing. And, and I want to just go on record and say that this extraordinary arts institution, the LA Phil, to, to dare to do this is so impressive and so noteworthy that I think all of us who love the arts and culture need to um, applaud this, this company for taking it on. Yeah. Anyway, I've promised to let you back. It's quarter after. Thank you very much, um, and you know, have a wonderful concert. Thanks. You guys will really, really enjoy it. And I'll talk with you a little bit about Sibelius once our guests leave. Thank you. Leave. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'll see you two later. Thanks. It's, it, you know, I, I have to tell you, it's, it's such a charming production that um, they were asking me beforehand, did, did I think it was um, a symphony concert or did I think it was theater? And it's really a little bit of everything, which is just so wonderful. So it, um, y you don't have to, you, can, you can choose what you're concentrating on or just enjoy the whole thing. But let, let, I'll ta let's talk a little bit about Sibelius and, and Finland, for instance. So Finland as a country has, a, has an interesting history. During the Bronze Age, um, Finland had three main cultures. It was Southwest Finland, it was Tavastia and Karelia. And each of these regions had their own distinct characteristics and, and distinguishing fe features. And then fast forward several centuries to the 13th century, Finland gradually became part of Sweden um, due to the Northern Crusades and also Sweden's um, colonization of, of coastal Finland. So today, even Sweden is recognized as one of the main official languages. Then in 1809, it was incorporated into the Russian Empire as the autonomous Grand Duchy of Finland. So in the late 1800s, around 1890, Finland, like so many other countries, was really, was part of the Russian Empire and was trying to gain its independence, striving for its independence. And finally, it was recognized as its own country in 1920. 
Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that was shortly after the Russian Revolution. So in, before the 19th century, countries like Russia, Finland, and America, for instance, had strong folkloric traditions, art, and music, but they didn't really have you know, concert music traditions, symphonic concert music traditions. So um, they typically imported opera from Italy or you know, symphonies from Germany. And as these modern states started to you know, emerge during the 19th and 20th centuries, music became one of the ways in which they could sort of exert, um, assert and celebrate their, their national identity. So some of the composers and artists really went overtly nationalistic and incorporated folk elements in what they did, while others were more sort of subtle, a bit more like Sibelius, where it was uh, more of an atmosphere, um, or let's call it an ephemeral spice, possibly. Now, musically, the national characteristics um, Musical, the national character was a combination, again, of these folk elements and influences um, that were rhythmic and melodic that even came from the way the languages, um, languages were spoken. So think about it. In Norway, we have, there was Grieg. In America, it was Charles Ives and um, McDowell. Granados was in Spain. And of course, Finland had Sibelius. Sibelius was the first Finnish composer to gain national, international fame, but his renown did start in Finland, and he was a, really a great symphonist. Um, his popularity outside of Finland varied from country to country and audience to audience. You know, some called his music vulgar and provincial, while others hailed it as sublime. But either way, his music is always and has been in, in great demand. Now, I know some of you have seen me over the years drag this ruler out, and I'll, I'll explain. It's from the Disney Music Store downstairs, and it's called Rulers of Music. So it does have inches on one side, but on the other side, it has a list of composers from, you know, Hildegard of Bingen, and you've got Chopin, and you've got Beethoven and Schoenberg, and you have Sibelius on here. So if he made the ruler, he's, you know, that shows you his level of international fame. <laughs> so, he, Sibelius became a national hero in Finland after his um, first symphony premiered in 1899, and it follows more in the romantic footsteps of Tchaikovsky and Bruckner, that sort of um, um, type of music. And, but each of his symphonies really has some sort of, um, has a very individual stamp on it that is specifically Sibelius, um, in particular his attention to musical form and to harmonies. His symphonies, unlike tonight's concert, was, was not programmatic music, so it was absolute music. It didn't have an overt theme um, associated with it. And um, Sibelius was more interested in the form and interconnections with, within the music. Sibelius wanted music to make sense rather than music having to say something about the world. Uh, at another time in his life, he wrote, a symphony is not just a composition in the ordinary sense of the word, it is more a confession of faith at different stages of one's life. Yeah. So in 1899, he wrote, um, after the first symphony, uh, a series of patriotic tableaux that depicted L, um, events in Finnish history. And the music was performed at a rally that was defending the freedom of the press. And the music was intended as a statement of Finnish nationalism. And he wanted to portray Finland's awakening and its fighting spirit. 
Um, since Finland was still the Grand Duchy under Russia, um, the piece had to have a covert title. It was called Impromptu. So he didn't get in trouble with the authorities. Now, this particular piece, the finale of it, the original title was Finland Awakes, and it became so popular that he had to revise it as its own standalone piece. So to his great surprise, it became a symbol of many things, including it got, it, it sort of is considered the second national anthem of Finland. So musical quiz, the name of that piece is? Finlandia, yeah. Jean Sibelius was born into a Swedish-speaking family in 1865, and it was his uncle who gave him his first violin at the age of 10. He encouraged him to pursue composition. Now, the interesting thing about um, his childhood was that all his um, siblings played music. So he was always in trios with them, and all the neighborhood kids played instruments, so he did quartets with them. So he was always involved in this sort of musical arena, which was so great. Um, but he ended up going to Helsinki to study law. Once he got there, he switched back to music. He said, no, um, I'm, I'm going to go to the Helsinki Music Institute and study there. And today, the, uh, the Helsinki Music Institute is now known as the Sibelius Academy. Um, while he was there, one of his friends, the Italian composer and conductor Busoni, convinced him to go to Europe to study for two years. So he went to Berlin and Vienna. And then when he returned to Finland in 1892, he actually went to teach it at the institute that, of course, now bears his name. This is one of my favorite quotes by Sibelius. He said he rarely invited musicians to his home. He said, they talk of nothing but money and jobs. Give me a businessman every time. They really are interested in music and arts. <laughs> yeah. In the early 1900s, um, Sibelius had a, a little bit of a health scare. He was suspected to have throat cancer. He was a voracious smoker and drinker. And he had to have an operation, which luckily turned out very successfully, and he vowed to give up smoking and drinking. I'm not sure about the smoking, but I'm pretty sure the drinking did not get um, abated. But um, he wrote a lot of really amazing music for the next few years. He wrote about eight symphonies. The eighth sort of disappeared. Um, but in the last 28 years of his life, he didn't really compose anything else. And there's one musicologist who said, Sibelius clearly has made up his mind that he had nothing important to say anymore. But given his precarious health when he was younger, he probably didn't expect to have the longevity that he did. And he died in 1957 at the age of 91. So let's back up a few centuries and go a little bit west to an island. And here we have one of the greatest writers of, of in the English language, um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote 38 plays that have been translated into every living language. When I was watching the production yet, uh, last night and they had Danish going on, I thought, geez, I wonder if they've done this in Klingon. I'm sure some Star Trek <laughs> fans have done it in Klingon somehow, but anyway. Um, well, I'll propose that to the Phil for next season. Um, but the thing about The Tempest, it's such a popular play. There are no less than 48 operas based on it, including Tom Addis's The Tempest, which was a Grammy Award winner. Um, Tchaikovsky has a symphonic poem um, based on The Tempest. There are numerous songs and books, and even films like, uh, for instance, Peter Greenaway's Prospero's books. 
Now in London, Shakespeare's playing company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, established a theater there in 1599, and that was the Globe Theater, uh, which was, went through many fires and mishaps, but is, is still standing on the original site, still producing Shakespeare works. So over here on the West Coast, um, modeled after that Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London, the San Diego, San Diego Old Globe Theatre, uh, which Barry Edelstein is the um, director, um, was built about 400 years later in 1935. It was built during the California Pacific Nation International Exposition to present abridged versions of Shakespeare plays. And at the end of the exposition in 1937, a theater company took it over, they leased it, renovated the theater. Um, it too went through various mishaps, but it still is presenting Shakespeare among other um, plays 80 years later. So the play, The Tempest, it's set on a remote island where the sorcerer Prospero it has been exiled. Um, he is the rightful Duke of Milan, and. And while he's there, he's planning to restore his daughter Miranda to um, her rightful place. And um, he whips up a storm, the Tempest, and he causes his usurping brother and the complicit king to be shipwrecked um, and marooned on the island. Um, through his sorcery, he, you know, the king redeems himself and he reveals his brother's deprived nature. He marries his... Um, daughter to Fernand, Ferdinand, his nephew, Ferdin, yeah, Ferdinand, and then, um, you know, there are all sorts of other little exploits. So the play is quite shortened, but what you'll see today makes absolute sense. You've got moments of complete hilarity, and then you have moments of, you know, sublime beauty and, and love and things like that. Now, one of the things about Prospero, although he's a sorcerer, he's not presented as a sort of an occultist. He's more of a rationalist, which is what Shakespeare did in his play, and also you'll see this evening. Okay, a, a little spoiler alert. It was really funny where he was, wait, be careful of the robes. You know, it, you'll, you'll, you'll see that, it was kind of funny. Don't touch my hair. Okay, yeah. Um, there are two other important uh, characters. There, there are several characters there, but two I'd like to mention, Caliban. He's a half-monster, half-human, and he was the only inhabitant of this island where Prospero was exiled. And the reason he's there is that his mother was an Algerian sorceress who got exiled there, and in childbirth died, and Caliban, this, this, this sort of creature, was left by himself. So originally Prospero befriends him, and, but then he tries to take advantage of his daughter, and then Prospero sort of forces him into servitude. Now the second character is Ariel, who is a sprite in the service of Prospero, and um, she was imprisoned by Caliban's mother in a tree, but freed by Prospero, so in his, in his service. And originally Ariel is referred to as he, as a male character, but in the productions I've seen, usually Ariel is portrayed by, by a woman. So this evening, Ariel is a female actor, and then uh, you'll have a, a mezzo-soprano singing wonderfully for her, her songs. Critics see um, Prospero as a sort of a representation of Shakespeare and his renunciation as, as, of, um, as of, ma of magic, as sort of Shakespeare's own farewell to the stage. So Prospero, or The Tempest, was one of his, I think the last play he wrote as, you know, just himself. And 
Sibelius's work, The Tempest, is one of the last two works that he wrote in his life. So there's this interesting correspondence between the two. Now, regarding the actual music, a friend of Sibelius originally recommended to him, hey dude, you should, you should write some music for this play, it's great. You know, then he said, sure, 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 and he forgot. Um, and then his Danish publisher wrote to him and asked him if he'd be interested in writing music for The Tempest because the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen wanted to use his music in a production. And he said, sure, 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 forgot about it. And then the theatre kept pestering him to take the commission. They even sent him the, the text, the, the play, in Danish. Um, and finally, uh, Sibelius gave in and agreed to the commission. So it was premiered in 1926 at the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen, and Sibelius wasn't even there. But he had a good excuse, he was working on another commission. But he eventually did, did, see, did see it. Now, as um, Susanna was mentioning, that Sibelius's music, especially his symphonies, are typically very um, absolute, and they're not programmatic, they're very concise. And in this particular piece, it's a work for theater. So it's very, very romantic and dramatic, and really underlies what's happening with the characters. But throughout his life, Sibelius was really strongly drawn to the theater. And when he was younger, he declared at one point the belief that music only fully realized itself in association with words, which is a very Wagnerian sort of um, ideal. But he had a great theatrical sense. He had gone as a young man to many and varied productions, both in opera and theater. Now, the music for The Tempest is, because of its nature in, in the theater, it's, very, it's got a varying styles and methods of writing for him. Now, Sibelius was a, a complicated man. He was racked by self-doubt. He suffered from profound feelings of loneliness and isolation, and he had recurring crises of confidence, especially after he's just finished a piece or after a really brilliant performance. And this sort of increased, especially in the years prior to his final works. And after finishing his, one of his last symphonies, just before he started on The Tempest, he wrote things like this in his diary. My life is now finished. This hell upon earth, which they encounter outside, never to escape. Woe am I, alone, alone. So really, someone who created such amazing, beautiful music was, was such a tortured soul. So the, the theme of the play the, of artistic isolation and exile really probably spoke to him and, and um, appealed to his creative imagination. As I mentioned, the music is very imaginative and there's um, one Sibelius expert, Daniel Grimley. He talks about the music for The Tempest and says really there are four categories of music in this, in this work. One is uh, music that evokes nature. One is music that's associated with aristocratic characters. Um, one is music that evokes idyllic scenes. And finally, the music that is um, representing the character of Caliban. So I thought I'd give you a, a little example of each. The first and most obvious um, of those musics is um, the opening prelude. So typically in this, in this production, it's slightly different, but what they did is they took that first scene and actually just made it a huge overture of a great storm.
swear I felt a breeze of cold Arctic air across me in the hall yesterday. I think that's just me being Canadian and remembering how cold winter is. But it's, it's just, the music is so powerful in, in its opening. So the rest of the music is all really little miniatures and um, other sort of filler pieces. Although Ariel is a very complex character musically and theatrically, her, she always has these arrivals and departures on stage that evoke nature. So this is just one example of one of her arrivals on stage. got a fan. <laughs> Shall I, I'll play it again. <laughs> repeat. Um, there, there's another um, really lovely miniature where Ariel takes the shape of an oak tree at playing a flute. Another representation in nature is, um, of course, the tempest and the storm and aerial, which are really quite intense wind-like sounds. But there are others that are a little more subdued. And there's this gorgeous chorus of the winds where the singers are all singing very quietly. Um, and it's hushed and barely audible. It's a wordless chorus. And that's accompanied by a harp and a harmonium. And it sort of suggests enchantment and nature sounds that sort of basically form the acoustic background for the play. category of music I mentioned was the one that is representing aristocratic characters. So Miranda, Prospero, um, the king. And they're, they're kind of stylized and archaic using modes. And one of the examples I'd like to play is where the king is having terrible grief over the fact that he thinks his son has drowned and been killed. And Sibelius uses a sarabande rhythm. And a sarabande is from the Baroque, where it's a very slow and stately dance, very, very, very elegant and aristocratic. So you have this really underlying um, sort of subtext musically that represents the character. So it, that's that Sarabond rhythm. Uh, one quick example of the idyllic 
which is sort of more a pastoral, the lost golden age. And here you have an example of, of Ariel's song. It's come unto, the yellow, unto these yellow sands, and it usually serves as an overture to the final act. I can't leave Caliban out. He um, is represented by chromaticism, strong rhythmic pulses and figures, lots of percussion, and it, it sort of the music underlines his his um, image as a primitive subhuman savage or animal. And here's a short example from Act Two where he's got this sort of mock triumphant song of independence, where he's saying, "Farewell, my master. I'm I'm, I'm bailing on you and going with these other two guys who have really good wine." hear a little bit more of that folkloric element that is, is infiltrating into the music. Um, so there's, there's an unconscious uh, nationalism, of course, in every country, and it's an automatic reflection of a people's psychology, their social customs, and, you know, their peculiarities, you know. Yeah, we all have our peculiarities. Uh, did you know that um, every year since the beginning of the 19th century, Finland has had a national wife-carrying contest across, across an obstacle course? It said so in, on their, their website. Yeah, well, they do, apparently. So not only, it's a little more esoteric than drinking vodka, jumping, jumping into freezing water, or eating Baltic herring, but they do that too. And um, they also produce amazing musicians and music. And so this evening, we have the wonder, wonderful Finnish conductor, Susanna Malki, and we have Barry Edelstein's Old Globe group, um, actors, dancers, the LA Phil, the LA Master Chorale, and it's just a wonderful, charming evening. I would just urge you to go to the restroom before and during intermission, because each, each section is about an hour, but well worth it if you, you sit through the end. So thank you very much. Have a lovely evening.